Timeline of infection is a really important thing. However, in this timeline, we don't actually put you know, time as we understand it, say a day or a week or a month, et cetera. Some diseases are very slow, like uh, filbert blight. You know, that, that takes a couple of years before you really see it. Well, other things are fast. They can be a couple of days. So the amount of time in between these is, is, varies from disease to disease. But the important thing is to understand the different steps that these pathogens go through to get into your crop and actually affect it. So for fungal pathogens, and it's not that much different for uh, bacterial pathogens, well, it, actually it is. Uh, bacterias and viruses, they're kind of in a different category. I'll talk a little bit about bacteria and virus later, but for fungus, we have a pre-infection stage, which is your germination. In other words, that's the point where that fungal spore germinated, all right? So I remember I got you guys all the way up to the point before where we're on the leaf. So, okay, now we're on the leaf. What's going on now? Well, that spore has germinated. It's decided that your apple tree is just sick as a dog and it wants to attack it and consume it. Why? Because in my opinion, God designed it to do so. You know, if you ask Darwin, he'll tell you only the strong survive. But what, you know, I mean, different points of view, but at the end of the day, it's serving the same purpose. So that spore germinates and starts to grow. All right, it's on the host now. Next step, it produces that germ tube. Remember in that video, that germ tube started coming out? That's starting to search. It's looking for a good place to drop anchor and infect. When it finds a good place where it wants to be, then the apressorium uh, is formed, which is a round, uh, a round almost peg that will begin to actually penetrate through the cells. So that right there, these are two things. In this particular portion right here, you have, really, you have three things that are critical. One, there are actually different ways, like, it, I, I guess, how do I say this? A lot of research has gone into trying to figure out what is actually signaling to pathogens, hey, you know, I'm a healthy plant, and the other one says, no, I'm a sick one, etc. cetera. What, what are these signals? So there's a lot of enzymes and, and other things that you know, I'm not even going to go there, but anyhow, so either the absence of one or the presence of one signals to the pathogen, this is a good place to establish and, and, and build a home. You know, think of the frontiers or the, the Oregon Trail, if you will, coming out here. They, they went through, what, 2,000? miles of desert before they finally started to see pine trees, and they said, let's settle here in Oregon. Well, it's kind of the same thing. It's gone through all sorts of different areas. All of a sudden, it gets to this host, and it says, wow, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Let's, let's establish here. So what's going on there is usually associated with plant health. So to avoid that crucial step, again, you go back to soil health. Uh, or sometimes it's age. If the crop is really old and it starts to get hit, so really old uh, vineyards, old orchards. Uh, I know they started to pull out a lot of the old vineyards in the southern Willamette Valley that were planted in the 60s and 50s and 40s when they first started to bring the vines into Oregon uh, because they discovered that they were just susceptible to certain diseases. So they start ripping them out. Now they're putting new varieties in. Um, filberts. They're ripping out filberts everywhere, and they figured out how to get genetic resistance, just only partial genetic resistance to filbert blight. So now they're putting up filberts everywhere. Everywhere you look out here, you see these filbert trees. Um, hardly can't go anywhere, but you know, it only has partial genetic resistance. In 20 years, or supposedly they're going to be attacked just like the ones that are there now. But now, that's the host. 
And then you have the germ tube search. So that germ tube stretches out, and it depends on what it is because every fungus is different and every host is different, but they have actually discovered that the, that, that the fungus has the ability to actually sense changes in the topography of the leaf. Now, I know that seems strange, but when you're a fungus on a spore, I mean, when you're a spore or a, a, a fungus on a, a leaf, you know, the leaf could be as, to you as like the parking lot of a football stadium. It's huge. So you can really sense changes in topography, right? Because it's just scale. So these changes in topography is what dictate, you know, do I want to make an aprosorium right in the stomatas? Or, you know, maybe I want to go right between these two cells over here where the turgor pressure is not right because maybe your minerals are out of balance or maybe your moisture isn't right. Maybe you've, you've dropped, stressed your crop too much or added too much water, et cetera. Uh, that's what it's looking for then. Then it starts to set a penetration peg. That penetration peg is what actually, uh, at this point, you, uh, if you will, you, um, it starts to actually penetrate the leaf and look for a place to form a hostorium uh, where you know, it starts to actually release toxins into the cell and it starts to actually take nutrients out of the plant or out of the host and uh, it begins to suppress the, 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 the host system of defenses, which is actually just like the plant immune system. And then it begins to enter into a reproductive stage. So different path, different, most fungal sprays you get, whether it's organic or conventional, the only thing they're good for is affecting it somewhere over here. Where, where, where these orange, you know, they, they vary, but they're here. So by the time you have a serious infection, most of those sprays are useless. It's too late. Um, you need to either make your applications post uh, germination or you're probably not going to be successful and that's if you're taking that approach now we can talk more or i'll talk tomorrow more about plant health but uh that's that's for that uh, now so let's see getting inside the plant so it's very important for the fungal spore which is right there and you see the aprosorium comes down through and it's splitting in, in between the different cells so what is in between those cells the mortar, if you will, if you, if you understand building brick walls, you know, the, the, the cement that goes in between the bricks is mortar that holds those bricks together and makes that brick wall strong. Well, the mortar in your cells, not only the cells in your body, but the cells in your plant, is calcium and silica. If it's, if it's not in the ground, it ain't going to be there either. It's like trying to build a brick wall with no mortar. <laughs> Got to have it in the ground, folks. So if it's not there, that fungus will come in and say, hey, this is easy street, and just spread out and get in between all those cells and uh, start you know, doing whatever it's going to do. But not all of them are that way. Some of them come in through stomatas or they come in through wounds. You know, the stomata is where uh, <coughs> transpiration goes through. But what's interesting to note is those changes in topographies on that leaf, you realize it's, it's I, don't, I don't even know, it probably, you probably measure it in angstroms, it's so small. It's very, very small but it's a different change. So again, if you don't have the right potassium in your soil and the right sodium in your soil, you're not gonna have it in your crop. If you don't have that right sodium and potassium ratios in those stomata cells, they, the turgor pressure may not be the same. The, the, it may be swollen, it may be shrunken, uh, and the crop says, hey, you know, I can get into the stomata even when it's closed very easily. Uh, so proper health, again, goes into that as well. Then you have through, uh, Hydrothodes, which are actual, uh, I think this is with uh, ferns, if I remember, which is similar to stomatas. Uh, and then it can also go through uh, wounds. So any damage that is done, uh, plants, leaves are cut or opened or 
It could be any type of mechanical damage. It can enter through there as well. Uh, now, here's a more colorful image of the direct attack by a fungal pathogen. So this essentially is a germ, uh, a spore that has germinated. And as soon as it germinates, these, these guys right here, th these are enzymes that are released, uh, cutinases that are released by the fungal organism. Essentially, it's like a toolbox, if you will. Every single fungal spore has this toolbox of these enzymes, which are like tools that it can release into the immediate environment to break down the waxy cuticles, which is the wax on the surface of your plant leaf. And then once it breaks that down, it, it starts to actually form that uh, aprosorium in that penetration peg. So the first step it needs to do is, like you saw in the videos, get through that waxy cuticle. So what does it need? It needs certain enzymes. So these waxy cuticles, again, one of the most important things there is copper and zinc. Those, those things are, 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 those other minerals are, are deficient. You, you don't get the, the, the same strength that you're looking for. And then of course, once you pass that, you get into the, uh, uh, right in between the cell, the cell walls right here, which again, those cell walls are produced, are, are strengthened with uh, calcium. Let's see. This doesn't, this came out kind of, yeah, okay, so this actually is, this on the top is the breakout of the waxy cuticle, so what you have on top is a wax layer, then the wax lamella, and then the cutin, and the cellulose lamella, the pectin lamella, the cellulose layer, the plasma membrane, and then the cytoplasm. So it has to get through all of that before it finally gets down to the cell to form a hostorium. How do you, how does it do that? You know, first, first off, how does a plant develop healthy cuticles? proper nutrition. And, and you know what's funny, folks, is that this right here that you see, if you've got athlete's foot, it's no different. If you've got different other funguses in your bodies and your nails, etc., it's no different. It's the same when it attacks your body as when it attacks a plant. Uh, so again, uh, this is the same picture as before. We'll just skip through that. So uh, again, Wow, where am I? I thought I put this in here already. We went over this incubation period, latent period, and quiescent period. Uh, all right, so fungal uh, infection. So here's a uh, microscopic view. I think this is electron microscope. Uh, so there's your fungal spore. There's your apresarium, which is, you see it right here in a, in a black and white. It comes through and it starts these little circles that you see right there are hostoriums. That's actually going into the cell and it's looking to hijack the cell and get the cell to work for it. It's kind of a way of coming in the back door, if you will. And I, I really want to make a point, though. <laughs> when I took plant pathology for the first time, I was at a secular university, you know. Um, just, yeah, it was a secular university. I won't even, yeah, it was a secular university. All kinds of craziness in there. And I was sitting in a chair, kind of like you guys. It was a classroom of a couple hundred students. and. Professor was going off talking about everything I'm talking about, and I felt, I seriously felt like the Lord was preaching to me because every time that man described these diseases and how they infiltrated the plant, it reminded, it, it really, I could see the parallels with how Satan infiltrates the church. And I see how he infiltrates your home and how he breaks it down and how he gets behind these layers. You know, the first layer should be what? The husband. Well, how, how do you do that? You got to get him out of the way. Get him out of the home, you know, get him out of the home, you'll get in there. And then what does he do? Divide and conquer. Get everybody to start fighting against each other. <laughs> and then start getting them to start feeding him somehow, whether it be through bad habits or what have you. And I just, 
I just see it. And, you know, while you're sitting there, think about that. Think of those parallels because I see it very much in the church and I see it in our homes. And, and the same way that he, you know, Ellen White tells us that Satan is the one that created these pathogens. How exactly? I don't imagine he came down here and actually, I don't know. But that's the wisdom that we're given. I, I don't want to make assumptions outside of what we're being told. But here again is another image. This one is going into the stomata. These are the cells that actually expand and contract to control uh, transpiration in your plant and to bring, nutri uh, bring uh, moisture through the uh, vascular system. And sometimes you have some that come in through there. So in this particular case, we're looking at bean rust pathogen forms an apressorium directly over stomata, thereby reducing the need for numerous enzymatic tools. So it doesn't even need that. It just comes right in the open door. Uh, this is again, I think this is bean rust now. This is a similar thing where you have, like I was saying, the changes in the topography. So, you know, they're trying to breed for genetic resistance to stem rust. They want to make, they want to find a, a way to grow leaf tissue that's straight flat so you won't have the uh, infection like that, which is, you know, I, I don't know. I, I laugh because they put in so much energy and so much effort into genetically engineering and somehow coming up with these genetics where they can overcome these tricks. And a lot of times they're really successful at doing that. However, I mean, some of this, it just, I, it goes back to nutrition. Get the nutrition right in the soil and you'll have it figured out. Now, um, let's see. Calilose, is, this is, if you're into the organic chemistry, that's what it looks like there, um, is, is, is something that the plant puts out to form a papilla, which is essentially, it, it, it tries to, one of the plant's uh, responses to fungal attacks is to try to build a wall, a, a barrier, and this is what it uses, but if the pathogen has the ability to break that down, then it'll break it down and get through. So it's, just, it's almost like a cat and mouse game when we start talking about genetic resistance and, and, and different host defenses as well as fungal defenses. Uh, here's an example of the papilla. So in this particular case, you had a fungal spore, said, hey, everything's perfect. It put out the apressorium. It broke down through the cuticles. It, the, the host uh, sensed that the, that the uh, fungus was coming in, developed the uh, papilla. The fungus did not have the capacity to break that down. The host won. In other words, you have resistance. So you see, you have to ask yourself, this is at the cellular level. In other words, this means an expression of DNA, an expression of genetic information. I'll get into translation and transcription, et cetera, later. But this is expression of genetic information. If you do not have the simple building blocks to express that genetic information, in other words, the raw materials, in other words, plant, nutrition, then how are you going to do this? You're not. Pathogen wins. There's a hostorium. Your crop's going to lose. <laughs> it's that simple, folks. Yet, yeah, is that complicated? <laughs> you know, I mean, at first it's like, huh? But then it's like, wow. Yeah, so then if it develops a hostorium, this is what it looks like. It hijacks the cell. It takes control of the ribosomes. It gets it to work for itself. It wants to express certain things and starts producing, sending nutrients off to the rest of the fungus, reproducing, producing more spores in the surface here that launch out like you saw in the video, producing more disease somewhere else. It's a cat and mouse game. It really is a cat and mouse game, just at a cellular level, involving a lot of very complicated things that a lot of the scientific community still hasn't quite wrapped their head around. So here's some more pictures. Um, here's a hostorium. So there you have the membrane. Again, to get through that membrane, what do you need? You need a phospholipid bilayer. If you're deficient in phosphorus, guess what? You're not going to produce a phospholipid bilayer. You need phosphorus. 
So phosphorus deficient plants are usually going to get hit hard with fungus. So hostorial plasma membrane is formed in here. You have the nuclei uh, of the actual, what am I looking at here? I think that's the actual fungus. And then uh, sometimes the host plasma membrane wraps right around the hostorium. And then you have nutrient exchanges between the fungus and the cell. So essentially the fungus is stealing or robbing everything the cell has to offer. Here's a stem blight, I believe. Is that what I'm looking at? Affected genotypes of the host are more commonly bacterial toxins. Host-specific uh, necrotrophic fungus attack with toxins. So uh, in this particular case, when, remember I talked about facultative, uh, et cetera, uh, necrotrophic versus uh, other different types. So trophic means just, I think some of you guys understand trophic, right? That just means that, that in other words, what, what's it looking for? Uh, how, how, what it consumes would be a good way. Like how does it survive? What energy does it consume? Uh, in, our, in our case, we're talking necro, which is, comes from uh, a necromancer, I think is a root word, which is essentially saying dead. It feeds fungus that feeds on dead plant tissues, necrotrophic fungus. That's what that is. So when those funguses attack your plant, they're actually releasing toxins. And one of the ways that your plant can defend itself, part of its immune system, again, is expression of its genetic code, is to produce... Uh, proteins that will neutralize those uh, toxins. And if it can neutralize those toxins, it can stop the host, fungus, from killing those plant cells and then feeding on the dead tissues. It's, again, simple yet very complicated. And of course, most of these funguses that are necrotrophic are very host-specific, like stem blight. Very, very host-specific. It can't go and affect some other thing. It's usually only a particular variety of wheat or a particular variety of, you know, grasses, maybe corn, etc. They're very, very, very uh, host-specific. Uh, all pathogen groups make effectors. So the, again, those, those, those toxins, those things that are sent out are, are referred to as effectors. So here you have uh, uh, the nucleus and then you have a bacterial uh, organism. It comes in, it's, the bacteria again will excrete different types of effectors doing similar to the fungus. It wants to break it down, set it down in here, and it wants to somehow either break down these cell walls or break down the cells and somehow get the cell to work for the bacterium. If the bacteria or the host has resistance, genetic resistance to it, whether it be genetic or it has the nutrients it needs to exp express that genetics, it will neutralize those toxins, those effectors that are sent out by bacteria or by the fungus here that has formed a hostorium, or in this case we're looking at a uh, chloroplast where, uh, I'm sorry, we're looking at a cell that has been attacked by a nematode. And it's all the same thing. Nematodes send effectors, everything. Aphids put effectors into plants. Anything that touches it will put some sort of protein into there where the plant can sense it. If it cannot sense it, it does not put up its system of defenses. It won't go into a defense mode. And that takes energy. So plants do not go into defense mode like we don't, you know, push our immune system because it takes a lot of energy. So if you're doing a lot of hydrotherapy, it demands a lot from your system because it's, you're building, you're increasing your white blood cell count. You're actually trying to push your immune system to fight things. You're, you're mimicking a, a infection when you do hydrotherapy. Um, and in plants, they call it priming it, where you come in and you throw in some effectors in there and you prime the whole plant to make it, make it think that it's being attacked by some sort of pathogen. And then the whole system, if it is systemic defense, the whole plant will actually start producing it, but it takes energy. So that means that it's not going to be as productive as it used to be. Yields are going to go down a little bit. 
Um, I went over this as well, so you see the same thing. So I talked about, again, defenses. So when you get to this point with a penetration peg, you know, you have a papilla formation. If, if the papilla formation was not effective at stopping the plant, then you have a hostorium forming, and then you have toxin formation uh, in necrotrophic, uh, in, in necrotrophic funguses, or you have hostorium formation in biotrophic funguses. But at that point, you have your basal system of defenses, which again is other effectors that are released by the plants, proteins, et cetera, to try to, to, try to neutralize this. And then you have a suppression of host defenses is what will become from that. It'll essentially try to overcome that. If the plant uh, has the capacity to sense this, but doesn't have any way to protect itself, it goes through what is referred to as hypersensi hypersensitive response or hypersensitivity uh, or programmed cell death. Essentially, the plant, the cells, kill themselves. If it doesn't have a way to defend itself, it kills itself. What does that sound like? Cell suicide, yeah. Well, what else does that sound like? Remember, folks, sin is a disease. If there's no cure to that disease, what does the host do? Kills itself. Yeah, that's the gospel right there. <laughs> you guys don't see it? If, if, if the head, being Christ, has no way to defend itself against the disease that the body has, which is sin, what does it do? It kills itself. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw it myself. I'll show you pictures later. I don't think I have one. But anyway, they kill themselves, and you get these white spots on the leaf tissues. Not only does it kill itself, but it sends a signal to the neighbors, and they kill themselves too. They say, die, we're being under attack. Don't let them take our nutrition. And it sacrifices itself to save the rest of the plant. Interesting, isn't it? And, or, if it doesn't do that, then it releases phytoalexins, which will uh, activate the uh, systemic acquired resistance, which is a, a, a form of resistance. It's like saying, here comes a certain uh, pathogen. It releases a certain uh, uh, phytoalexin, which will go out throughout the entire system of the plant. And the whole plant, and sometimes even the neighboring plants, will put up their defenses against that pathogen. So it's pretty complex, you know. And all this happened by chance. You guys go figure it out. Anyway, um, GMOs, ge uh, genetically engineered foods or crop, crop systems, have entered the food production system globally. It has allowed us to feed the world, whether we like it or not. You can't argue that point. Uh, that's a fact. It's a historical fact, uh, not necessarily a scientific one. But yes, it does have some science to it. However, is it necessarily a bad thing? Now, my answer to that question is I have multiple different answers. First off, from my understanding of the science, I have not yet been able to put together where a cell with a nucleus that has some sort of genes brought into it that are other than the genes that were here is somehow negatively affecting a human being. I have read studies that they have brought up, but I don't really see the science in them. Now, my problem personally is not GMOs themselves. My problem is the type of farming that GMOs allow us to do and have pushed the world into doing. Because you can grow GM, genetically engineered corn, you can go out there and you can put your BT corn or your BT uh, uh, Roundup, BT Roundup Ready corn, 
that allows you to spray things like Roundup. It allows you to, uh, it allows the host to go back. Actually, that's a good point. You brought this up. Now you brought this up. BT corn. What is BT corn? What is BT? What is Bacillus thuringiensis besides a fancy scientific name? There's a particular genes that they took from the bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis that they translocated into the corn genome that now the corn can produce it. So now the corn is producing those exudates which allow it to, which uh, prohibit uh, any type of uh, coleoptera, which is just a fancy word for all your caterpillars, uh, from actually feeding on that corn. But now it's expressing genes that God didn't design corn to express. And that's one of my big concerns, but that's just only to BT corn. Now, I can't make that concern with BT cotton. Why? Because I don't eat cotton. I wear cotton. But can it affect me by having contact with me? I, I, honestly, I don't know. I really don't know. I can't answer that question on a professional level because I don't have an answer for that question. But with the Roundup Ready stuff, I can because what Roundup, what glyphosate does is it locks up nutrients in the soil, making them unavailable to plants, thus killing the plants. And what we're growing is a large amount of food, you know, a whole lot of bang with very little buck, and it doesn't have the nutrition we need. And that's what I believe is a large driver of disease in this world today, is, is that. But the absence of those, those nutrients, which is more than just the basic building blocks of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and maybe a few calciums and a couple other things to build just the corn stock and a ear of corn. This brother is talking about triticale, which is a crossbred between uh, um, barley and wheat, right? Rye and wheat. I'm sorry, rye and wheat. So that allows folks to grow, or farmers to grow, uh, this grain in a colder climate. Um, I, I can't say that. That would be an issue unless they're bringing in some other type of genes. But what I, uh, what I first have to, that takes me into a whole other argument. First of all, <sighs> Satan is very clever. So what Satan has done is that he has taken all type of breeding, whether it involved transgenics, that is bringing genes in from maybe taking a gene out of a pig and putting it into a tomato, or you know, a bacterium and putting it into a corn, et cetera, which you're, it's uh, horizontal of breeding where you're moving genes that way with things that normally don't breed, and the actual you know, genetic breeding of cross-breeding plants like what you're talking about, and bundled it all under the term genetic engineering. So now, scientifically speaking, genetic engineering, GMO scientifically is a word that has no meaning. Uh, it's just a word that's popular throughout you know, normal circles. It doesn't have a scientific meaning. In science, it's genetic engineering, or it's a more specific, you know, CRISP, or et cetera, et cetera. They use scientific terminology, but they bundled all that breeding into genetic engineering. So like what you're talking about, it's not a horizontal shift where you're bringing genes in from some foreign thing that has no business being in there, and you're trying to play God to break something else to solve a problem, when really the problem from the very beginning was the production system and the economics and political issues that, that are driving farm and agriculture in our country, especially in developed countries, it's not so much you know, yields and many other issues. But anyhow, that takes us down another path I don't really want to go to. Uh, so what you're talking about with that particular plant, I have no problem with. However, with introducing cells through whatever means it is, whether it's CRISP or what have you, it's, it's, I, don't, 
I don't really feel comfortable with it because of what I said, the agricultural practices that it brings in. But you have to understand that not that genetic engineering nowadays, the way it's scientifically defined, does not necessarily mean that you're dealing with organisms like that. So the, his statement was, uh, you know, if we're, if we're, uh, he's looking at it from a moral, is that what you said, I'm sorry? Philosophical, philosophical standpoint, well, if we do this with plants, we can do it with humans, and well, we're already doing it, I believe, with cows and uh, sheep, and uh, I don't remember what else, but yeah, you, you, you make a good point, you know, but I, I'm referring, my, my statement earlier I want to reiterate is not about morally or philosophically, it's simply from a scientific standpoint, I don't see that argument, from a Religious standpoint, I have a very serious concern because I don't like the idea of putting things into my body that God didn't design. I don't like the idea of somebody playing God for me and then telling me that they're not going to tell me that they played God. Um, you know, the whole thing reeks with really Satan's practices. Uh, so can I come over here and show you some scientific article that says, oh, if you eat this GMO, you're going to die of whatever. You know, No, I can't do that. But, um, you know, I, I also can't come over here and, and, and show you a scientific journal that says the seventh day is the Sabbath. But I don't really need it. I have the Bible and the word of the Lord. So when I make my own decisions for my own diet, I decide I don't want to consume those things because of what thus saith the Lord, not thus saith man. All pathogen groups make effectors, you know, bacteria, fungus, uh, nematodes, aphids, etc. Uh, anyway, the effectors are uh, certain proteins and things that are released by the pathogen in order to break into the host and try to, you know, get into the host and attack the host. So there are, um, they have, there are in some instances manufactured synthetic forms of these effectors, which they, what they call prime the plant with them. Uh, I believe they do some of this in some of the vineyards. Uh, but a lot of this is usually done in tissue, tissue culture, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't, I've never done it, and I don't know. I only know about it. Um, so is it really necessary? I know, for one, it's very expensive, but the thing is, you know, again, piggybacking on what, uh, what's his name, uh, Whitmar just said, when it comes to producing, or shall we say manufacturing food in this country, United States and all the developed countries, uh, very, there's very little profit to be made. But when you're going to grow it to, to uh, ultimately make some sort of intoxicating substance, <laughs> a lot of money is in it. So in the vineyard industry, millions of dollars are in that. In hops, I was lucky, man, I couldn't believe a job offer for $170,000. He says, let's go grow hops to make beer. No. Cannabis is going nuts. I got people asking me to go grow cannabis. No, I don't want to grow cannabis. I want to find a job growing food. You know? And, and that's how, kind of how I ended up leaving Oregon and going all the way to Massachusetts. I don't want to go to Massachusetts. I don't like New England. I like that. I was fine and happy right here. I couldn't find a job growing food. I could only find jobs growing intoxicating substances like hops or cannabis, or wine. Now, I wasn't interested in those things. So, um, going back to what you were asking is that those type of expensive measures are usually only taken with expensive crops, and those are usually intoxicating crops like tobacco, or cannabis, or wine, or hops, or whatever. Barley is another one, 
but barley is not used only for beer making. They, they do other things with it too. Um, apple canker. Most of those cankers are bacterium, bacterial diseases. Um, the most important thing with all your bacterias and, and, and well, not just bacteria, but fungus, uh, same with fire blight, the biggest problem, actually we were just talking with uh, 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 Alan here. A lot of the, some of the study that was done out of the OSU is looking at uh, fertilizing, when you fertilize, and how certain levels of nutrients can block out other levels of nutrients. So one of the big things with fire blight, um, and I believe it may even be with apple canker, is when you apply your nitrogen fertilizers and uh, how they may affect the uptake of other nutrients. With orchards, unlike most of your other perennial, I'm sorry, uh, annual crops, with perennials, unlike your annuals, they don't just take up nutrients nonstop all the time, uh, anything. They look for certain nutrients at certain times. When you're fertilizing and you're fertilizing in excessive amounts at the wrong time, you have a tendency to block nutrients when they're most desired. An example is excessive nitrogen fertilization on orchards in the spring. Well, in the spring, when you're supposed to be flor uh, forming your floral buds, which are going to become ultimately your apples, if you put too much nitrogen down, it has a tendency to block calcium. When it blocks that calcium, even though it may be readily available in the soil, uh, that ultimately will result in a lot of fire blight and in uh, different uh, apple scabs and other diseases that are associated with funguses on the fruit, simply because you weakened the, the plant uh, or the uh, fruit tissues. So the epidermal cells, which is the exterior of your apple, uh, is essentially a protective layer of not only the seeds, but the edible portion that's inside. If you want to harvest and take a good harvest and put it in storage and keep it there like apples for like a year or whatever it's going to be, um, and you do not have strong plant tissues, uh, then it's not going to keep in storage very long. So what happened with studies that they looked at is when they apply the nitrogen fertilizers, how much and what, they, what effects they have, and what they saw was that excessive nitrogen fertilizers tend to affect the translocation of calcium particularly, but other nutrients in the spring, which affect the quality of the floral buds, which ultimately affect the quality of the fruit because it's the only time of the year where those tissues are actually formed. Uh, you get into a little bit of plant biology, but uh, once that, once that uh, well, let's see, it's at the time, it's the same with tomatoes. You get blossom end rot, not because you're deficient in, blossom, in calcium when that fruit is swelling, you were deficient in calcium at the point where the floral bud was being formed. And that's when that nutrient goes in there. If it's not available at that time, then blossom in rot. If it's available at that time, no blossom in rot. Apples are very similar. If it's available at that time, you won't have to fight with them so much. It's the same with peaches and other stone fruits. Uh, fire blight takes off as well. Fire blight being a bacterium looks for those rich, simple sugars oftentimes brought about by high nitrogen. Uh, so you throw too much nitrogen on the ground, you're feeding the fire blight. If you eat too much sugar, you feed the wrong bacteria in your body. You feed the wrong fungus in your body. It's the same thing. They're very much uh, correlated. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.